Well, it is indeed hard to believe, isn't it, that, that Easter is a month away. And if you're here in the city of Chicago, uh, the weather has finally turned, right? February felt like the longest month ever, even though it's only four weeks long. Um, the snow is melting quickly. The sun has been out for a lot of the last couple weeks. And it's crazy that Easter is, is so quickly approaching. And so our team thought as, as Easter is now just over four weeks away, we have four weeks in March, as we thought of how we could help at Sunday night service to prepare our hearts for our Easter celebration as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we've decided that this next month here in March, we're going to spend it studying the chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And so I would encourage you, to grab a Bible or open your phone and follow along with us tonight in 1 Corinthians 15. Each night we're going to just take a chunk of verses and walk through it together. This is a well-known chapter of scripture and it's an amazing one because it, it helps us see so clearly the impact that the resurrection of Jesus should have on our lives. And as we get, go through this book, we're going to see Tonight, we're going to see regularly over the next several weeks together that there is no good news if there is no resurrection. There is no good news if there is no resurrection. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting tonight at verse 1, it says this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul transitions away from the topic of chapter 14 and starts to address the resurrection here in, in chapter 15. And to do so, he brings them back to the gospel that was proclaimed to them. And he talks about here, he, he uses kind of three expressions. He says it was received, the gospel was, they stand in the gospel, and they are being saved by the gospel. What Paul does here is he highlights that the gospel changes our past, it changes our present, and it changes our future. This idea of the gospel was received that's a looking back to that moment of salvation where they place their trust, they place their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And at that moment, the gospel takes effect into their lives. An entire person's past is changed, right? The, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his blood now covers our sin. And so the gospel received changes our past, but the gospel changes our present, right? In which you now stand, See, as followers of Jesus, we don't outgrow the gospel. We never move on to other things. The gospel is present in our lives each and every day. And it gives us the power to stand and to live a life pleasing to God. And so the gospel has present day, everyday implications. And then the gospel has future implications. He says, and by which you are being saved. See, there's an element of our salvation that we are saved from sin, but we are not fully delivered from the effects of sin in this world. And we are saved by Jesus, but ultimate salvation that we still have to look forward to will come when Jesus comes again. And he makes us who we truly are in him. And Paul's going to get into all those details a lot more in the upcoming weeks here in 1 Corinthians 15. 
See, it seems that, that Paul transitions here because the Corinthian church believed about Jesus, but they didn't have a full understanding of the gospel. And so he introduces the resurrection here in 1 Corinthians 15 by talking about the gospel that he has already preached to them for this reason. He starts by the gospel for this reason. It's that the resurrection is essential to the gospel. The resurrection, which he's about to go into in detail, is essential to this gospel understanding that we receive in which we stand and by which we will be saved. So our first point tonight as we work through this text is the necessity of the resurrection. The necessity of the resurrection, that it isn't just an optional component of Christianity, but it's core, it's central to the very gospel itself. Now in Christianity, you can think of there being three tiers to theological issues. And this is a helpful framework if you've never heard of this framework before for thinking through where certain matters lie of agreement and disagreement amongst Christians. So the first tier you have would be tier three, which theologians would refer to. These would be issues such as what what Bible translation someone would prefer. Maybe a preaching style or preaching method, how the church service itself is structured. Is it more liturgical or free-flowing? The specific interpretation of certain passages would be here. These are all tier three issues. And what we mean by that is they are people who are part of the same church, but have some very minor and small disagreements over. These would be things that would be of true of us here at Moody Church. Even those of us who are on staff, who are pastors here at Moody Church, we would have slightly small, different variations on how we would see certain passages interpreted and applied. These are things that, again, Christians in the same church would slightly disagree on. Those are kind of tier three issues. Tier two issues are slightly more significant issues. There are theological things that churches would often kind of be independent over. Why there's different denominations because of things like tier two issues. Examples of these, baptism. The, the how, how God's sovereignty and free will work out in salvation. Perhaps even issues of eschatology and Jesus's return. These are important issues. They're significant issues. But the key here is this. In tier two, even though they may be enough that there's different denominations, they're things that all Christians agree or disagree about. These are issues that they're Christians disagreeing or agreeing about views on specific doctrines like baptism and sovereignty and free will. So these are still Christian issues, but there's a greater level of disagreement on them. And then you get to what you could call tier one issues. These are what you could call salvation issues, where if you miss this, you aren't a Christian. You've missed the gospel. Some, what, what would be a tier one issue? They would be the Trinity, that God is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They would be the full humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. And right there in a tier one issue, essential to the gospel itself, would certainly be the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. You can call yourself a Christian, but if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you aren't a Christian. It is a tier one issue. If you disagree on it, you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. You're not a Bible-believing Christian. And so the resurrection is necessary for Christianity, for the gospel, for the new life we have in Jesus. 
As one scholar says, the resurrection is the keystone to the gospel. It holds it all together. Now, when I was thinking about this this week, uh, something came to mind probably while it was late at night and I was eating some food, is I, I thought of the resurrection as kind of like, kind of like, chocolate chip cookies. Now, hold on with me for a second before you start posting what the world is this crazy guy talking about, all right? Chocolate chip cookies are great, in my mind at least, because they can be in so many different varieties, right? You can have your regular chocolate chip cookies, you could add peanut butter to the chocolate chip cookie. You could add oatmeal to the chocolate chip cookie. You could do all sorts of variations. You could even make a chocolate chocolate chip cookie. That sounds really good. But what you can't do is take the chocolate chip out and then call it a chocolate chip cookie. Instead, you're left with something like an abomination of an oatmeal raisin cookie or, or something that isn't even worth consuming. My point is this, just as you can't remove a chocolate chip and call it a chocolate chip cookie, you can't remove the resurrection and still call it the gospel. It's not an, 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 a, a theological thing that we can agree to disagree about. It's essential. It's core to what we believe. The resurrection changes everything. And if we don't believe it, then we have abandoned the gospel. So th th he sets that up as we dive in, and that's so important for us to realize, jumping in, the necessity of the resurrection for us as followers of Jesus. He continues here in verse 3. He says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That idea of being delivered, it's, it's almost this idea of passing a baton on to someone. So Paul's almost saying, hey, I grabbed the baton from someone else, and now I'm passing this baton on to you. Of first importance, these are uh, the most important things. Verse 3 in the middle, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. The second thing we see in this passage tonight are the witnesses to the resurrection. All right, we have here witnesses to the resurrection. And Paul highlights primarily two witnesses here that he helps us see the resurrection in light of. The first witness is the witness of scripture. Notice how it's referenced there two times, right? In, in accordance with the scriptures. This is meaning that the resurrection is in accordance with the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And the Old Testament is filled with texts which speak of a suffering servant to come, a Messiah who would die, but who God would raise again from the dead. He doesn't reference a specific text because most likely in Paul's mind, there's so many. And the whole Old Testament is ultimately pointing to Jesus as Jesus himself proclaims, if you remember, on the road to Emmaus in Luke. So there's, there's here scripture it says that according to scripture that Jesus died, that Jesus died. He, he died. He did not swoon on the cross. He did not faint on the cross from exhaustion, but Jesus was dead. He was really dead, not mostly dead or partly dead. Jesus was fully dead, that Jesus died, that he was buried. This offers a finality to this death. Right? And it also helps push against those who would say the resurrection isn't real because the disciples stole the body. 
or the women were so distraught that morning that they went to the wrong tomb. Because if that was true, a body would have been produced to stop this Christianity from happening. It would have been produced quickly if that had happened. But that's not what happened. That Jesus, in fact, died and he was buried. And then third, it says that he was raised on the third day. That he was resurrected. And scripture points to this. And we see all of scripture culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so scripture is this first witness to the reliability of the resurrection. The second thing that, that the second witness that Paul points to here are the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. The eyewitnesses. And so starting there in verse 5, he tells us how that Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the 12th. Cephas is Peter. Peter, one of the most well-known kind of demonstrative, outgoing, talkative leaders in the early church, as well as, of course, a disciple of Jesus. You can think back here, these, these appearances are recorded in Scripture of Jesus appearing to the disciples as they're locked in the upper room and they're able to place their hands in the holes of in their, in where Jesus's scars were, excuse me. And you remember the story that Thomas, one of them was not there. And Jesus again appears and Thomas places his hands and believes in Jesus. And so he's saying, hey, Jesus physically appeared to these disciples, but not only to the disciples, He says he then also appeared to the 500 brothers at one time. We don't have a recollection or or scriptural account of this story, but, but that Jesus appeared to many people while he was alive after the resurrection. Then in verse seven, then he appeared to James, that would be the brother of Jesus, who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and then to all the apostles. The reason he highlights these eyewitnesses is for a few reasons. Number one, he's doing this just to confirm the historicity of the resurrection, to tie it specifically to the eyewitness accounts of not just one or two people, but literally to hundreds of people who met, interacted, saw Jesus after the resurrection. He's not only confirming the historicity of it, he's kind of here forming a chain all the way from Peter to ultimately himself, which he's going to go to in the very next verse. This kind of chain of people that Jesus appeared to. It wasn't just random people, but Paul says you can trace it through and see all these people who witnessed the resurrected Jesus Christ. Another reason that that he lists these people is this, as we see when he talks about the 500, when he mentions that most of whom um, are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He's saying this, there are people still alive Today, not just me, Paul's saying, but there's other people who are still alive who met the risen Lord Jesus. And so he's saying, hey, if if you doubt my word, just go ask someone else. Go ask someone else. First Corinthians is one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. And so he's saying, hey, listen, those, those eyewitnesses, lots of them are still alive. And so I'm not making a statement on my own, but I'm saying something that is true, it is verifiable, not just by one or two people, but literally by dozens, by hundreds of people. He's saying you can trust that the resurrection happened. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ stands on historically solid ground. 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't just something we believe in because the Bible says it. The resurrection is something we believe in, not just because we hope it's true. The resurrection is something we believe in because it is indeed the truth. See, there are certain things in life that you just naturally agree. And this is especially true as children, that somehow we, we understand these things, that there's facts that arise that we just take for granted as, oh, well, that must be true when they're actually not true. And if you start to research these things, you'll realize that, man, these seem to be popping up all the time. What, what were our parents, what were our teachers telling us as kids? For instance, when you were young, or maybe still now, were you told that, that cracking your knuckles would give you arthritis? You know, that nice little pop that you get when you crack your knuckles. Someone who hated that sound told you, hey, you better not do that. You're not going to be able to use your fingers later in life. Like, that's not true, though. But so many of us just took that to be true. Or this one, which I, I remember as a kid because it terrified me a few times, is that if you swallowed a piece of gum, it would take you seven years to digest it. And I had this image of, in my head as a little kid of like my stomach just getting filled with all the pieces of gum that I had accidentally swallowed to like it would fill up and I wouldn't be able to eat anymore and I would die. When in reality, your body just passes that through typically within a few hours, certainly within a day or so. Again, something that we may have believed, but it's entirely false. The resurrection is not just some fable, some thing that someone made up and kind of a story that gained momentum until it just became accepted fact. And Paul wants the Corinthian church, and he would want us to know today that the resurrection of Jesus is not something he made up. It's not something Peter or the disciples made up but it is a historically true thing that happened. It's an event that took place in space and time, and it's the resurrection itself that is a historically true thing that changes everything about our lives. See, Paul here pushing out these eyewitness accounts to the Corinthian church remind us as Christians that we don't need to check our brains at the door when we become followers of Jesus Christ. But no, if you remember, Jesus said that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your heart, soul, your mind, and strength. See, just because Christianity and a relationship with God is based on faith, it doesn't mean that the things that we base our faith on aren't facts. We are people of the truth. And it's not the measure of how much faith you have, but if you're placing your faith in what's true, that truly matters. And so I would encourage you, if you're someone who struggles with certain aspects of Christianity, maybe you even struggle with wondering, is the resurrection of, of Jesus true? Was Jesus really who he claimed to be? We're not just supposed to be like, well, I guess so. And I shouldn't even think or question or study anymore. No, what Paul would say in this passage is, hey, listen, if you doubt it, go ask, go do your research, go study, and they could even go ask the people. But for us, it would be, no, just, just study, research intently, use your mind to engage all that God has revealed to us. The resurrection is a historically true thing. It happened. And that's why Paul pointed to all these witnesses to the resurrection. Last appearance of Jesus, though, verse 8. Last of all, 
as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. This last would be not only chronologically last, but also because Paul views himself as the least of all the apostles. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Thirdly, tonight here, we see the results of the resurrection that that happened in Paul's life. The results of the resurrection. How do we know in our lives when we have encountered the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? How can we look at ourselves and say, yes, these results in my life show that I have placed my faith in this risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Well, Paul points to his own life and what happened there, and it helps us see two changes, two things that were changed in his life as a result of the resurrection that happened when he met the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. First is Paul shows how his life was changed by the grace of God, that he was changed by grace. He says here in verse seven, excuse me, verse eight, that he is one who is untimely born. Well, it's a very unique word. And if you were to study it, it was the same word that would actually be used towards a child who, excuse me, towards a child who is miscarried or a stillborn child. So it would refer to not one who was like kind of oddly born or a weird birth, but a child who was born with no life at all. What he's saying here is this, is when, when Jesus appeared to me, it was very much so unlike his other appearances. See, when Jesus appeared to his other followers, the disciples and the apostles, they already had faith in Jesus, most of them. And this faith was just confirmed by seeing him. But when Jesus appeared to Paul, he's saying, I was dead. I was, as a stillborn child, I was dead in my sin, helpless to change myself. He's, he's illustrating his own life as he does in Ephesians chapter 2, talking about how we are dead in our sin, but then made alive in Christ Jesus. So he highlights this change that was brought about by the grace of God in his life when he encountered the risen Savior. And I love that verse there in verse 10. That could be, I think, a life verse for a lot of us, right? But by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God is how I am, is what I am today. See, Paul looks at his life. He looks, as he said, that he is unworthy even to be called an apostle because he was persecuting the church. He was going, not just running from God, but running away from God to kill those who followed after Jesus. When God's grace appeared in his life, when the resurrected Jesus appeared to him and it so radically changed his life. See, the resurrection is the grounds for the radical new life that we have in Christ. And if we see this change, now the change in our lives probably won't be as drastic as Paul's. Maybe you were running around going and killing Christians before you met Jesus, but I would bet that for all of us tonight, that's not our story. But we still in our lives should see evidence of change because of what Jesus has done for us. The gospel brings about a change in our lives when we encounter the risen Savior. 
But not only are we changed by grace, look at this here at the end of verse 10. We are now motivated by grace. We're changed by grace, but now we are motivated as well by the grace of God. These verses here go often against what we may think. In verse 10, it says, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. See, it's important for us to realize, and I love how Dallas Willard put this, that, the, that grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. And that comes down to your internal motivation, right? Earning is an attitude that if I do enough, I can receive a certain status before God. Effort is because of what God has done for me, how can I not but do all I can to seek after and serve him? The actions may look very similar. The difference is the heart. But grace is not a post-effort. It's opposed to trying to earn a status before God. And that's why Paul can talk about the grace of God being the great motivator in his life in seeking after and living a life pleasing to God. What God has done for us should motivate us to live a life for him. Now, as I was thinking of this, I was reminded of, of a situation back in my life when I was in junior high, kind of some ancient history for me now. When I was in junior high and my basketball team, which I was, was going out for and I really wanted to make it when I was in seventh grade, but our team was made up of seventh and eighth graders and the large majority we knew of the people who made the team would be in eighth grade. Just when you're that young, a year's difference physical talent wise makes a huge difference. And so a bunch of us went out for the team and ultimately by the time the team was made, there were three of us, myself included, who made the basketball team as a seventh grader. Remember it was me and it was Derek and Jason. The three of us made the team. We were the three seventh graders on the junior high team. Now, once I was selected, once I was picked, chosen for the team, did I just sit back and say, well, I've made it. I've been chosen. Now I don't, I don't really need to practice hard. I don't need to practice outside of practice. I don't have to shoot extra jump shots. I don't need to run anymore. No, I've been chosen. Now I can just sit back and relax because I'm on the team. No, of course it was the opposite, right? But because I was chosen for the team, it was motivation to practice harder, to, to, to shoot baskets even more outside of practice. It was motivation to even work more because I was chosen. My friends, when we have been chosen by the grace of God, it's never right for us to sit back and say, well, because God chose me, now I don't really need to do anything else. I can just sit back and coast through life because God chose me. But no, when we realize what the grace of God is in our lives, that we've been chosen by him, it's the greatest motivator to live a life of all human effort possible in pleasing him. Grace is a motivator to effort in following after Jesus. So where are you tonight? We're two months into this new year and often when a new year starts, it's easy to find motivation for, for scripture reading, to renew some of those spiritual disciplines in our lives. Where are you if you're a follower of Jesus? When you see Paul talking about, oh, he can say he's, he's working harder than anyone else because of the grace he's been shown. 
Is that evidence in your life? Or are you practicing laziness in following Jesus? See, the gospel should be motivation to us in following after him. So what can you do this week to have grace-motivated effort in following after God? Maybe it's been a while since you've read his word. and This week you can pick it up. Maybe your prayer time has kind of drifted to the side and you haven't really spent any time in prayer. Maybe this would be the week where you could refocus on that. Maybe you've been self-centered and you're not really serving the people around you, your family, or you're not serving the, the roommates that you live with. Maybe that could drive you to serve someone else this week. I don't know what it is in your life. Only you know. But I would just remind you of this, that grace in our lives, when we encounter the risen Savior, that grace should motivate us to live a life pleasing to God. God, we do thank you for the grace that we have received because of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And that when we encounter him, our lives are changed and we are motivated to follow him with all we have. God, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it is true and that it is life-changing. God, would you empower us by your grace this week to seek after you in all things. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.